0: Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. This episode is a live session from day four of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023, and it's called The Art of Bitfulness, Keeping Calm in the Digital World. Nandal Nilekani and Tanuj Bhojwani in conversation with Anirudh Suri, introduced by Sudhanshu Shekhar Khamari. Good morning, everyone, and as you know, this session is being partnered by Bank of Baroda. Bank of Baroda has a long-standing commitment to support education and literacy in India. One of the ways Bank has supported education is through partnership with the Jaipur Literature Festival. JLFD is one of the largest literature festivals in the world and brings together writers, poets, thinkers from around the globe to celebrate the written word. Bank has been a sponsor of JLF for several years and has played a key role in supporting festival efforts to promote literacy and education. The bank has helped to fund various events and activities at the festival, including author talks, panels, discussions, and uh, uh, workshops. These events provide a platform for authors and experts to share their knowledge, ideas, and insights on a wide range of topics related to literature, education, and and written words. In addition to its partnership with JLF, Bank of Baroda also supports education and literacy through its various CSR activities. As you know, the day after uh, day before yesterday, our MD sir has declared in association with JLF one literary award that is Bank of Baroda Rashtravasa Samman is uh, uh, we are launching, and for that actually it carries the highest literary award uh, 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 amount in Hindi. So they So a total amount of 61 lakh will be given in that. And any literature, any uh, book that is translated into into Hindi that year, it will qualify for that award. So in that six books will be shortlisted by the jury. And the first book that will be awarded that the original writer from the regional language, he or she will get 21 lakh. And the translator into Hindi, he will get fifteen lakhs. And for another five books, the original original, regional writer, regional language writer, he will get three lakhs, and the translator will get two lakhs for that five other books. In conclusion, Bank of Baroda has a strong commitment to support education and literacy in India through its partnership, such as JLF. And such uh, various CSR activities. Without taking much time, let me introduce the session and the renowned panelists. I am extremely happy to unleash today's session on the art of bitfulness, keeping calm in the digital world. We are excited to have technology-friendly writers, Mr. Nandan Nilakeni and. Tanuj Vojvani with us today. They have written a compelling book that delves into the secret of using electronic devices for our benefit without losing either mental peace or physical fitness. The book explores the information flow of what inundates our screens and how it can be controlled in a way that is that becomes a key to success in a mind, mindful bit sort of way the authors will be in conversation with mr anirudh suri discussing their insights and experiences on harnessing important topics and learn how to master the digital world not abandon it let me welcome mr nandan nilakeni mr tanuj bhojwani and mr anirudh suri on stage thank you for being here thank you
1: thank you to kamari sir and bank of baroda Nandan Nilekani is the co-founder and chairman of Infosys Technologies Limited. He won the Economist Social and Economic Innovation Award for his leadership for India's unique identification initiative, which is better known, and, known as Aadhaar. In 2017, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from ENY. He is the author of *Imagining India* and co-authored *The Art of Bitfulness: Keeping Calm in the Digital World*. Tanuj Bhojwani is a storyteller who codes. His training in the sciences and humanities allows him to craft narratives about technology that are accessible without sacrificing technical depth. He is a former fellow at Icebird Foundation. Bhojwani works on policy issues related to digital identity, payments, data protection and drones. Last but not the least, our moderator for today, Mr. Anirudh Suri's critically acclaimed book, The Great Tech Game, provides a big picture view of this vital question of our times. He continues to explore India's place in this new world order through his work as a technology venture capitalist and a non-resident scholar at Carnegie India. Over to you, sir.
2: Uh, no, thank you so much uh, and good morning to all of you. Uh, it's a delight uh, to be here with uh, Mr. Nelakini and uh, Tanuj, uh, co-authors of the book, The Art of Bitfulness. Um, Let me first start uh, by saying, uh, uh, Mr. Neelakini, you've been an inspiration to, I think, many of us in our generation, and I think Tanuj and I can uh, vouch for that, that there have been few people in the public domain who've managed to traverse the private sector as an entrepreneur. You've been at the forefront of the IT services revolution that has transformed India over the last three, four decades. And then more recently, in the last decade, on the, in the public domain, having heralded uh, the revolution um, that UPI, Adhar and the India Stack broadly has started off. And I think that journey is obviously going to play out a lot more over the last next two, three decades. But, so, thank you, sir, for that, uh, I think, setting that example for so many of us who, who often try to bridge the public-private domain, uh, but don't find it as easy as at least you make it seem. Uh, so given we have limited time today, uh, the plan, I'll just give you uh, all in the audience a quick plan of what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start off obviously talking about the book, The Art of Bitfulness, which looks at a very important question of the individual's relationship with technology. Uh, but then we'll also quickly move into part two and part three of the discussion, which will look at how our society is interacting with technology and how technology is shaping our society. And lastly, we'll talk about how our nation, India, is being shaped by technology and our relationship with technology going forward. So, let me first start off, um, Tanoj and Mr. Nela uh on this piece of the individual and the technology. What's your uh, – some of the key takeaways from the book, on how the individual is being shaped, both in terms of values, behavior, time spent, etc. Uh, What are some of the key takeaways that you would like to share? And also how your own thinking evolved uh, from the time when you maybe thought of the book to by the time you published the book?
3: Sure. Uh, Thank you very much, Anirudh. And uh, this book essentially came out of the pandemic. I think in the pandemic, uh, we found that we were spending more and more time on our digital devices. We were working from home. We were getting entertainment from home. We were ordering food on the device. We were buying things on the device. We were having relationships on the device. So everything was becoming more and more digital. And we also found that more and more people were getting actually completely, uh, their lives were getting upset. They 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 were getting a lot of negative news. They were getting depressed. They were doom scrolling and, you know, reading about when is the next vaccine coming or not coming or whatever. And uh, both of us are in Bangalore, and we used to go for walks together. And we thought that maybe it's worthwhile trying to put out something about how to live with technology. Because technology today, especially because it is advertising-driven, is designed to make you more and more engaged with the technology, and therefore you end up spending more and more time. And the best way to engage you is by appealing to your emotions, and that's why we have all this uh, polarization and so on. So we thought that just like we have other things about how we deal with uh, our lives, how to deal with today's consumer technology we thought was very important. And so the book is really about how to live with this technology, how to be on top of it rather than let the technology dominate you. And of course, you know, given that we have an interest in policy, the second half of the book is about policy and how can we build better infrastructure than winner-take-all models for business.
2: And Tanuj, if I may just add on a specific question, which is, you know, as I was reading the book, you talk about the relationship uh, individuals had with technology that was intended to be one of a trusted sidekick. (laughs) I like that term. It was intended to be a trusted sidekick, but somehow it has become both a co-dependent, but more dangerously a toxic relationship.
4: Yeah, Uh, yeah, I think that that metaphor was one of those things that, you know, we, like you said, how did your thinking evolve around the book is that, I think if you don't talk about this matter, what happens is you believe somebody else is doing it better. So uh, I think Nandan used to look at me as somebody younger and therefore I must have like a more manageable relationship and I used to think the same about like 21-year-olds or or younger. Uh, But what we did discover during the writing and the research with talking to people is that everybody is frustrated and Gen Z more than ever uh, and a lot of them just sort of had this idea of taking breaks and just like getting off social media for a while and it was commonly understood that this is happening. People would get very concerned but when you tell them I'm just taking a break, uh, it's become common sort of in their culture to do that. what you know, one thing we want to emphasize is, therefore, when Nandana went on those walks and we were talking about how we deal with technology, we realized that the methods are similar, even if the particular tools, software, whatever, are different. And he's obviously been doing this for you know many many years. How he manages information, how he retrieves information at uh, you know when he actually needs it, irrespective of whether you had smartphones or not, this OS, that OS, this app, that app, right? So we try to collect that timeless sort of wisdom. And therefore, the book says this is how to live with your technology, not how to live without your technology. This is not about disconnect or preaching that, you know, you don't need these phones, etc. I think we all need them. We all need them for specific things. Um, But what ends up happening is that it's a toxic relationship. Like you said, it's a dependency. And we use them even when we don't need them. So so trying to walk that line is what we have in the book.
2: So for some of you who might have been at the discussion yesterday that we were having around the morality of technology and how technology is changing our values. Uh, You might remember that I talked about tech optimists, tech pessimists, and tech realists in the middle between the optimists and pessimists. So let me quickly ask both of you. My own hypothesis both of you are tech optimists. But of course, the book, I think, comes from a very realist standpoint, saying that we don't believe that technology has to be given this free reign. But you really have to think hard about how to manage that relationship, because you don't want to avoid, right? That frustration must not lead to this idea that you want to avoid technology, right? Um, so am I right that you're both tech optimists or tech realists I mean, uh,
3: I'm not only a tech optimist, I've spent most of my life actually using tech to make a difference. But I think the, the part of tech which I'm hugely optimistic about are how to use this digital transformation to improve societies, to give well, sure. better services uh, to, you know, to create a better quality of life for people, to help them meet their aspirations. But the point is that while we do that, we also get into this model of using things which are designed to captive, uh, you know, captivate you and then you use them in excessive ways and they have a negative impact on your, on your behavior. So I think uh, we are really trying to say, look, we, we want the best of tech to be used. But we want to make sure that the worst or baser instincts that tech initiates Initiates. uh, is is sort of managed. And that's what the book is about. Now, coming to values, see, there are no universal values in in anything, including in technology. I think, broadly speaking, uh, the internet of the last 20 years, there are four different paradigms which seem to be emerging. One is the US, which has post-2000, completely led by market forces and uh, led to the rise of great companies, but also, uh, you know, creating massive uh, winner-take-all models, which is now there's some amount of reaction to that. You have the Chinese approach, which is essentially creating their own Chinese firewall and then it's a surveillance-oriented approach and so on.
2: Much more state-led.
3: Yeah, state-led and, you know, there's a camera at every every road junction and people are seeing who's speeding and that kind of stuff. And then you have the European model which is essentially regulation-oriented. So, they are all about GDPR for privacy, Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act. So, they see regulation as, as an end in itself. I think the Indian model is very different. The Indian model is about empowerment of people. And therefore, we are very, very optimistic about technology. Just that we want the uh, more negative aspects to be managed.
2: To be managed. No, that's right. Um, and I think just five years ago also or three years ago also, I think, people, at least in the global discourse, are only talking about these three models, the US private-led, the Chinese state-led, and the European as a, Europeans as a regulatory superpower, as some of them were calling uh, Europe. But I think you're right that India is now starting to present that fourth model to the world, uh, which we will come back to in the later part of our discussion. The other point around the individuals that I wanted to get your views on, and this is something that um, I'm actually personally very curious about, So, as I was doing the research for my own book, one of the things that I came across was some psychologists who were looking at how technology is rewiring our brain. And uh, one of the interesting um, um, ideas I came across was this idea that over the last several decades or even centuries, you can argue, through the Industrial Revolution, this idea of, uh, um, you know, industry uh, line, production line, Uh, has almost made our system, our education system, our ways of thinking to be a very linear thought process driven system. So, right, we as individuals have been trained to think linearly now. Um, However, if you look at how the internet is structured through this hyperlinking process where you are clicking and clicking and then going on, there's this idea that's coming out of a networked thinking approach, right? Um, And there are both pros and cons to it. But I wanted to get your views on whether you believe that the technology, the internet uh, and smartphone technology in particular, is rewiring how we are thinking. And this you might draw upon your experience at Infosys or otherwise also.
3: I'll just quickly say something and then I'll... I think we should distinguish between the pull model of the internet and the push model of the internet. The pull model of the internet is something which allows me to traverse any part of the world on the internet, which is very, very powerful using hyperlinks. I can click and go anywhere and so on. And that really exposes me to uh, you know a wide variety of things, but the push model of internet, where somebody is pushing m- information to you, that's far more corrosive, because as we said, since the whole thing is built on advertising, the system or the, a- the the AI and all the algorithms are trying to feed you things to keep you captivated, and then they'll feed you things that you want to hear, so and then so you go to a filter bubble and correct. you know polarization. So I think I'm I think the. The model is probably one which is much more wide-ranging but push, the risk is that they send you stuff you want to hear and then you become more and more irritable. Uh,
4: yeah, no, we I do think that the way we think is changing. I still remember I had this uh, interview once where um, uh, it, it didn't go very well because uh, they asked me what is an idempotent matrix and uh, what's the nil potent matrix. I do remember now, but at that time I may have messed it up. And, and, uh, you know, they use that as, oh, you don't know this much. And I I said, look, I can, uh, this is 2012. I said, look, I can pull out my phone right now and Google this in four seconds. Uh, The fact that you're asking me this, is archaic, right? Like you, you don't need to uh, ask me what I'll do with it, ask me how I'll put it to uh, whatever and uh, obviously the interview got very miffed. Uh, and I think today similarly once we have these uh, chat GPT, we have a bunch of other tools coming in. I think the premium on certain skills keeps going down and down. I think uh, Tarun Kanna's session, the last session yesterday, he was saying that we always think of meritoc- meritocracies, right? But what is merit changes. At some point being a good horseman was merit. At some point, being a good swordsman was merit. So at some point, we became a knowledge economy, um, and that's you know in a particular kind of skill or merit. Uh, how quickly we adapt, how quickly we change to this future. Uh, I think what what Infosys did, you know, and this is one of the reasons that it's now so commonplace, but we don't uh, appreciate this that uh, building this talent pool, like they really sort of created a set sort of an army of engineers out of India of software, a software industry out of India. And it's it's really a software back in for the world now. Um, so so you know to your earlier question also, technology is not something that has its own destiny. I believe that was in your session that I heard. Uh, it's how we shape it. And I think what Nandan and, and the team that we work with largely has shown that we can shape our own destiny. We can shape both at an individual level, how we use it, what we do, but also at a collective level, you know, how, how India as a country responds to this, takes charge of this opportunity. Um, you know, those, are, those are options available to us and all of us can decide how that works.
2: Yeah. Now, let me now move to the society piece. Um, You know, one of the uh, things that I tried, um, and I think you've both done this in your book quite well also, is try and place, and many others have now tried to put the current technological revolution in a way in a slightly longer historical context. And that's one of the things I tried to do in my book as well. And one of the things that came out in my research was the impact of industrialization and the institutions that it brought about. And the societal and family level changes it brought about were um, you know, very stark. So we in India, for example, very clearly can say that we've moved from a society that was, for example, joint family-driven, much more spread out geographically, to now urban agglomerations, nuclear families, etc. And if that was the impact of the Industrial Revolution, uh, Mr. Nelligini, today the tech revolution in a way, if you look at Gen Z, but even all of us, as you walk into even the JLF, you see people talking less to each other, though I think JLF is much better than uh, other uh, settings I've been in recently, but people are becoming even more individualistic than what the industrial revolution might have caused, right? From that move from joint to nuclear, in a way, we've moved to nuclear families to more individualistic families where your children are also not often talking to, to you at the dinner table. Is your sense that the tech revolution, and especially the smartphone, leading us into that one-way direction where we are becoming more and more individualistic? Or is it that there are other sets of technologies, other than the smartphone, obviously, which is a very individualistic device, that might actually reverse a little bit of this, what I think is a dangerous direction?
3: No, I think, certainly, I think uh, people spend more and more time on the devices, and every minute they spend on the devices, they're not spending with other people. So, in that extent, yes, it's becoming more and more... Uh, inward in that sense. And also, because of the filter bubbles, you will only be in that world which, which, where, which resonates with your ideology or your thinking. So, I think it's definitely leading to much more polarization and tribal behavior because they, it, force, it encourages you to be in your own tribe as opposed to cross. So, I think those are all social consequences. But the other big thing is that all prior revolutions happened slowly. Right, so it took 40 years for electricity to become widespread, or 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 you know, or or toilets, public toilets, or whatever. So each of these things take decades to work. The risk we have here is this this stuff moves at hyper speed. I mean, you know, you launch something, and then within a matter of uh, you know weeks or months, it spread. So as it is, society and change happens at a glacial space pace. On top of that, you have this hyper-speeded uh, activity, so I think that makes it all the more difficult to even predict where this will land up. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the, I- individual, yes, inward-looking
4: also, but I feel like there is uh, hope as well. Uh, you do find uh, that there are people who take charge of uh, these spaces, and they, you know, they learn a lot. A classmate of mine recently became a mother, and she says that you know one of the big things for her has been finding this Facebook group called uh, Mothers of 2022, right? Like so the women who uh, gave birth in that year act as a support system for each other. So these little small bubbles of kindness, small bubbles of sort of using the technology in a more um, community oriented way exist, uh, except they're not mass marketable. They're not the most profitable way to use technology. And I think somebody needs to innovate and make that uh, the, the frontier model of technology rather than the advertising model and, and one of you could do it. Honestly, I, I really think that's the message in the book also, that uh, we explain how these technologies, uh, you know, what is actually happening underneath, which leads to these outcomes of tribal behavior, etc. Collaborative filtering, we have a whole chapter on that. Uh, but, but the message of the book is you can redesign this. Anybody can. It's not something that only some wizards in Bangalore do. It's uh, something that honestly anybody can.
2: Now, that's absolutely right. I think if you think about even the COVID period, which is when you were writing this book, I can tell you from personal experience as well that it was these micro-communities that were enabled by messaging platforms like WhatsApp, et cetera, that really became the support network for literally everyone. When I think we saw institutional failure in certain pockets, it was these micro-communities, again, enabled by literally actually the same technology that we were worried about, that also then provided us, I think, absolutely essential support. And uh, and that's why I think, you know, I, I was having this discussion yesterday with someone that I do believe that for all the pessimism sometimes we have about the addiction or the distraction that uh, the smartphone might bring, the flip side is almost always equally true that the kind of creativity, the kind of support networks that people naturally tend to build using these technologies is also, I think, something to build further upon. Um, let me also ask you, when we talk about society, the other concern that many people today have is this idea that we are maybe going back almost to this idea of a gilded age, you know, which existed 150 years ago, when the industrial capitalism was at its peak, and there suddenly developed this massive socio-economic divide between the haves and the have-nots. Because of concentration of wealth, then we see, you know, back in pre-war, World War I, Europe and then subsequently during the World Wars. In fact, Toby Walsh yesterday uh, during our panel spoke about this also. Do we expect that the kind of inequality that these models, the business models that we've seen at least in the last decade or two, which leads to concentration of wealth and winner-take-all models, are you worried about that from a societal standpoint? And if so, what is it that now as a society, as a people, our response to that should be is it more a welfare state labor driven movement or is this are we going to have to come up with other ways to manage this kind of divide
3: no i think uh, uh, because of the essentially the concentrating nature of uh, technology which network effects essentially you inevitably if you don't think it through you have winner take all uh, models and when you have winner take all models two things happen one is there's massive wealth concentration in the winners And the second is that part of winner-take-all models is extreme automation and eliminating jobs and so on. And therefore, it also creates low incomes and uh, declining jobs in the middle class, which is what has happened elsewhere. But in fact, we think that the answer to that is, of course, there are answers of creating a welfare state and so on. But actually, it's also if the technology is well deployed. And that's where if you look at the India stack, and the whole approach in India is, how do we re-architect this technology to create a more equitable, more universal, more inclusive, more egalitarian society? And therefore, there's a deep uh, philosophy here that you, if you want to make it truly inclusive, and we have done that in India, and we will do that in India, and I can explain more of, the, of that. So absolutely, the fundamental driving principle of what we do in India is to counter the winner-take-all nature of the internet.
4: Uh, I think in, in, in other contexts, Nandan gave this framing that I really like is that uh, the US went from these mom and pop stores to sort of large format retails to like big box retail like your Walmart, etc. And then when Amazon came in, uh, they basically were like big box or big malls online and the everything store and everything is available and one place where you get everything and and I think the prevalent models of the internet or things that happen on the internet, business that happen on the internet are always like that, we own everything, we are catering to everything. Whereas what we really need and for a country like India is to go back to that bazaar model, the local sort of you know. Uh, local kind of commerce, local kind of com- media, uh, you know, in a small network, like a, one person influencer having like 10 million followers is, I think pointless, right? Like the only thing they'll produce then is the lowest common denominator, which really enriches nobody, but there's a lot of lip syncing and dancing, right? Uh, on those rails. But, what you really need is like smaller, like the internet is very good at communicating people based on interest rather than geography, which is how history has been organized, what is local. But to you local could mean like authors and readers could be a community uh, connected across the internet, etc. So I, I really like that. I think that that's where India is building for and, and you know, we're building those bazaars and we're building those things online. Uh, again it's up to each of us to vote with our, uh, with our wallets, with our feet, with our attention. Uh, which one do you prefer? Are you going to go to like the big box? detail of the world or are you looking at, uh, you know, the kind of ONDC sort of models that we are building here?
2: Tanoji, you're forgetting that if you want to sell your book, uh, you need the influencers. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have
4: nothing against them.
2: <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, I think the piece that I now want to move on to and I think Mr. Nilakini, you were starting to allude to the India stack. <clears throat> and so now I want to move to the tech and nation piece of our conversation. As a nation, but before I come to the India stack. Um, I want to ask you a question which uh, has been playing on my mind. Um, As a nation, and as someone who has been on the tech entrepreneurship and VC side, but also uh, at least over the last few years has been seeing very closely the tech policy development in uh, Delhi, and I say Delhi for a reason to provoke you to say that maybe it should not only be Delhi, um, but I see a paradox in India, and maybe some of you might share this. On one hand, we have seen over the last five to ten years, an incredible adoption of digital technology. It's an absolute revelation. Like the last 10 years, the smartphone market, the digital uh, revolution enabled by UPI, but also by the startup ecosystem has seen massive, massive adoption. So you would think that India is an amazing tech adopter nation today. But on the other hand, paradoxically, I can also come back and tell you that in 2015, when drones, and drone startups were starting to uh, really pick up, our first reaction as a country was, let's ban them on national security considerations. You look at biotech, we have very, very strong restrictions on genetic research, which is an emerging area of innovation globally. You look at AI, the conversation yesterday, for some of you who might have been there, was a lot around, what are we supposed to be afraid of, right? So we have these paradoxical, almost, in our heads, views to technology. So, I want to get your views on this. How does India, given, you know, I've talked about the great tech game in my book and I believe that India has got to win this time. We cannot lose, like we've lost the industrial game and so on and so forth. What does India need to change in its attitudes towards technology that you feel that we are maybe not getting right?
3: No, I I don't think it's about attitudes. I think it's about how innovation spreads. Uh, there's a type of innovation which we can call as permissionless innovation. We don't ask anybody's permission and it, it, it quickly rolls out. And then there is permissioned innovation. So, a lot of the digital infrastructure is permissionless, right? I mean, uh, smartphones, are going, uh, some app is downloaded, they, nobody asks any permission. And that has both very massive diffusion as well as some negative consequences. Whereas permissioned innovation is where there's a regulatory process to uh, we asked, whether it's to make uh, genetic food, uh, you know, uh, genetically modified food or whether it's to use drones for security. So I think in, invariably when it's permissionless, a diffusion of innovation happens very fast. If it's permission, then obviously governments and regulators get involved. So I don't see it as an attitude problem, just the nature of that innovation and digital innovation has tended to be permissionless. So uh, drones is a very personal subject for
4: me. I'll just keep this short. Uh, Your bio mentioned drones. So uh, no, I, I I was part of a. I started a company in 2013-14 which used to fly drones. Uh, the government banned it uh, when Amazon announced that they're going to be flying drones in India. Um, and then uh, and then since then I actually ended up here with in the tech policy space and then working with Nandan and now we're here. But uh, a simple thing is that. Um, I think this is this is not a technology question, it's a political and sort of generally a society a state of our society question because um you know we are not still not yet a rule of law country really right people all of us traffic outside we know that if there is a you know there's a u turn and you have to go a little further away in Noida and Delhi, you know this that people will drive on the wrong side of the road right like it it really doesn't matter, so I guess if you if your job is to be responsible for safety i think then the response to a society like that is to over regulate and i've seen it i saw myself uh, sahara star in bombay where i'm from there was uh, weddings right and this is literally at the airport right but even here, people will fly drones upstairs at the wedding and they're like, you know, chalta hai or they'll drive a cop or something. So, the
2: permissionless innovation. Yeah, so permissionless innovation <laughs> also. there. Yeah, I
4: mean, I, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's like uh, you say my school teacher is shouting at me a lot or like is, is doing something or whatever. And the question to ask is, but have you been behaving as well, right? have you been maintaining decorum in that space? And I, I do believe that it's a interactive thing and we also need to sort of start thinking about more broadly about how India becomes a rule of law society for us to start then enjoying this sort of freedoms, I guess.
2: So we'll open it up to the audience uh, in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, I cannot actually do justice to this conversation without actually getting Mr. Nelikini's views on the India Stack story. The India Stack story, for those of you who are not familiar, obviously started off with UPI and Aadhaar, but is now getting extended to various other sectors. And so, Mr. Nillikini, if we can just take two or three minutes to talk about where it's headed, yeah, and how you feel that can enable a next sort of two-three decade of uh, decades of gen- innovation in India.
3: Yeah, I think uh, we are roughly halfway on the journey of India's digital transformation, and uh, as you said, it began with Aadhaar, which I was the you know founding chairman of Aadhaar in 2009, and today 1.3 billion people have a digital ID Aadhaar and. They use it 80 million times a day, so it's, it's ubiquitous in its consumption. Uh, then UPI was designed by NPCI, which is uh, where I'm an advisor, and that does about 7.8 billion transactions a month and about 260 million Indians use it. Uh, and uh, there are about 50 to 60 million merchant points where you can make a UPI payment with the QR code. And then along with other, we also did DBT, which now India runs the world's largest direct benefit transfer program digital signatures, a digital locker which the government has built, 140 million Indians store their Aadhaar Aadhaar details or their vaccination certificates there. So this is all already there and it is working at scale. I think there are three big revolutions that are yet to happen. First is the account aggregator ecosystem where India will be the first country where data will be empowered, people will be empowered with their own data. So unlike the winner-take-all model where data concentrates in companies or governments, in the Indian model, the data is distributed and is with the empowerment of each person. So a small business tomorrow can get a loan using his digital footprint. And this is extremely democratizing. So credit, for example, will get democratized. It's part of building an equitable society. The second thing is ONDC, which will allow you to disaggregate commerce. It makes commerce more inclusive. Every small retailer or supplier can join the network and commerce will become. And the third is the revolution in logistics. Uh, as the India builds a much better logistics, better airports, ports, better digital connections, a common GST, fast tag on the roads, uh, com- uh, the logistics will become cheaper. So commerce, logistics and, uh, uh, and lending will become dramatically different. And then there's the whole AI layer on top of all this, which I think will allow much better access to services for everybody in their own language. So, broadly, this is where we are and this is where we are going.
2: And if I… I think that does deserve an applause um, because I think that it has fundamentally rethought how our digital relationships with firms and governments will be. And I think that this has been no easy task and uh, I think we must applaud folks both in the private sector, in Bangalore, Delhi. A lot of people have been behind this. And obviously with the guidance of uh, and vision that you've unleashed with the uh, Aadhaar over a decade ago. um, And I I would encourage entrepreneurs in the audience to think hard about how to use this infrastructure layer that's getting built to build innovative apps on top. Because I think that will also then become a source of wealth creation. We've done the infrastructure piece. The roads have been built, I think, in a very fair, equitable manner now. uh, And now it's up to, I think, India's entrepreneurs to create wealth on top of that through innovation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Laksh This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.